0: Saying the Savasava Sutta, the discourse on all the taints. And in this sutta, the Buddha is explaining seven methods for restraining and abandoning the asavas. As we explain, the asavas are the basic defilements, the most primordial defilements. Which sustain the round of samsara. And so to attain liberation, to attain arahantship, one must eradicate all the taints right down to the most fundamental level. And of the seven methods, the first method for eliminating taints is called seeing, destiny. That's what we explained last time. And dasana means, technically, it means the attainment of stream entry. <laughs> and stream entry is called seeing or dasana because it is attained by seeing directly, personally, the four noble truths. And to see the Four Noble Truths, what is particularly sort of at the center of seeing the Four Noble Truths is seeing Nibbāna, the unconditioned, the deathless. Because when one sees Nibbāna, then simultaneously one penetrates and understands all Four Noble Truths. Now, in the suttas, when we read how the Buddha describes, uh, in the suttas, we often read a passage in which the Buddha is teaching the Dhamma to somebody who maybe has never encountered it before. The person has not done any previous meditation practice, at least not Buddhist meditation, and has had no exposure to the doctrines of Buddha Dhamma before. But the person is sitting down listening to the Buddha give a discourse. And as the Buddha explains the Dhamma, he prepares the mind of this disciple, the disciples gradually. First he gives them some explanation of the benefits of generosity, then the benefits of sila morality, the Dangers and sensual and the benefits of a heavenly rebirth. Then discourse on the dangers and sensual enjoyment, the benefits and renunciation. Then, when the mind of the listener becomes full of confidence in the Buddha, and becomes calm and settled, trusting in the teaching, then the Buddha teaches the four noble truths. And when the When the person hears this discourse on the Four Noble Truths, then the text says, there arose in the say, householder upali the stainless, dust-free eye of dhamma, dhamma that whatever has the nature of arising, all that has the nature of season. And so the expression used here to indicate the attainment of stream entry is Dhamma Chakri, which is the seeing, the eye, the spiritual eye, the eye of wisdom by which one sees the truths that one has never seen before, which is seeing that everything that arises ceases. And one sees that everything that arises, ceases by seeing the ultimate cessation of all conditioned things, that is Nibbana. And so what is emphasized in this description is that the attainment of stream entry is an experience of seeing. And that experience or act of seeing is exercised by a unique spiritual faculty, which is called the Eye of Dhamma. It's a kind of inner eye which opens up by hearing the discourse of the Buddha and by penetrating the truth of the teaching. For those who don't have the benefit of listening directly to the Buddha, then they have to undertake practice, training, in sila, samadhi, panya, virtue, concentration, wisdom. And when the practice of insight wisdom reaches maturity, then there comes the seeing of the Four Noble Truths, the attainment of stream entry. Okay, but now once one has reached stream entry, then one has the knowledge, the essential knowledge of the Dhamma, so that one doesn't have to depend on anybody else to reach final enlightenment, not even on the Buddha. That's why in the description of the stream-entera, it's said that he is Aparapachya satu sasane which means that he is not dependent on anyone else within the sasana of the master, within the dispensation of the enlightened one. He's independent even of the Buddha because he has the inner wisdom of enlightenment and it's through cultivating that insight, developing it, maturing it, that one will gradually Cut through layer after layer of the defilements until they are all destroyed and full wisdom, full knowledge arises. The knowledge gained by the stream enterer cuts off, as we read last time, three fetters the fetter of personality view or identity view of self. Okay, the view of self is a wrong view, which means a misunderstanding. So when one sees the Dhamma, then wrong view gets swept away through an intellectual act of seeing the truth. The second fetter is doubt. Doubt also is an erroneous intellectual state, Miss not being able to trust the teaching, to put, not being able to believe in it, to accept it fully. And also the third fetter is what? Silabata <inaudible> Paramasa which means clinging to the rules and observances. And as I explained last time, this clinging to rules and observances is really the wrong belief that merely by following rules, certain rules, even precepts, Merely by undertaking certain practices, especially aesthetic practices, one can reach enlightenment. And so through the attainment of stream entry, one gets rid of this wrong, It's also it's a wrong view, so one gets rid of that wrong view. Now what is common to all three of these first fetters is what? What is the common factor? binds them together. Not quite. Excuse me? No, no, what what is the common factor shared by these three fetters? Personality view, doubt, clinging to rules and observances? In a sense, ignorance, but something more specific. Okay, maybe actually it's a little unclear, the question. The common factor is that they're all, in a sense, intellectual errors mistaken views or doubt about the correct view, about the truth, doubt about the truth. So when one sees the truth, then these intellectual errors get cleared away. But there are still the other defilements which are non-intellectual or we might call the emotional afflictions, the passions like lust, hatred, conceit, vanity, selfishness, hypocrisy, all of these emotional defilements and those have to be eliminated by the successive by the successive stages of practice, in order to reach full liberation. So now the Buddha is going to show in the five additional methods for restraining these taints, which take on the emotional forms, but which can take on emotional forms. Now. With the attainment of stream entry, all the intellectual errors are swept away. But one still has to cultivate the mind to subdue the emotional defilements. And then finally, one has to eliminate the ignorance, which is at the whole, the foundation or base of the whole realm of existence. Okay, so now we come in the sutta to the pains to be abandoned by restraining. The word for restraining here this is sangvara. Either sangvarahat. And the Buddha explains this by way of restraint over the sensa. And he he explains this specifically in the case of a bhikkhu or Buddhist monk. First I'll read the text. Here, a bhikkhu reflecting wisely. This is Bhattisankha so Reflecting in a deep, thorough, accurate way, careful way. Abide would the eye faculty restraint? This means not that he's always looking at the ground, never looking around, but so when he goes walking, then the Buddha says that one should go O the Chaku, which means with downcast eyes, not looking around what's interesting to see, what's that to see, but keeping the mind withdrawn inwardly, keeping the mind occupied inwardly so that the senses are not roaming outwardly. Because when one doesn't exercise this restraint of the senses, when you just leave the senses to their own natural condition, then the eye is going after attractive forms, the ear after lovely sounds, and so on. Each of the senses is seeking its own attractive and agreeable object. And so one doesn't really have to clamp down on the senses themselves, but one has to restrain the mind, keep the mind under control. And one does this, can do this by keeping the mind fixed on some inward object. What I found especially useful for doing this kind of practice is when walking, to be aware of the feet touching the ground, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. That reminds me of something, maybe a funny little story that I would tell. <laughs> when I go back to New York to visit my parents, every day I like to take a long walk. Around that area where they're living. <laughs> but, you know, here, if a Buddhist monk is walking the streets, people don't look up or don't look twice. <laughs> but if you have a Buddhist monk walking in the streets of Long Island outside New York City, one can be subject to what I found interesting is that when I'm on the quiet side streets, people don't seem to look up. Or don't seem to pay much attention though I think they are inwardly shocked but they can't express anything outwardly but it's when I come to the street where there's a lot of traffic going by that it's not the people who are walking on the streets but it's people in cars riding by (coughs) who call out things like why don't you go back to Iraq (laughs) Dame or a guy. <laughs> <laughs> or sometimes just they call out, woohoo, woohoo! Just nonsensical sounds like that. And the trick is to get you to look up. You see, if you look up, they win. Because <laughs> they've caught your attention.
1: <laughs>
0: so when I found a useful way for. But okay, if you look up, they win. But if you don't look up, they lose and you win. Because they become the fool. They shouted something out, but they didn't catch your attention. So what I found to be the useful way to keep the mind sort of fixed and under control when walking on this busy street is to be aware of the foot touching right, left, right, left. <laughs> So one day I was walking on that busy street and I think a couple of cars went by calling some people calling out. Then as I was walking I noticed a car along the side slowing down. <laughs> I just kept on walking, said don't look up, don't look up, Plus, like sometimes there are these rough types who will pick on, you know, a foreigner and maybe come up and start speaking insultingly use physical force. So I thought, don't look up, don't look up. So I just kept on walking, walking and the car, kept on going slowly, slowly, like 20, 30, 30, 40 meters. Then I heard the car stop. From the corner of my eye, I saw somebody walking out towards me. (laughs) I was thinking, don't look up, just left, right, left, right. (laughs) Then it got very close. Okay, look up. And then I saw a man, looked like he must have been Thai. And when I looked up, he said, Venerable sir, <laughs> can I give you a ride someplace? <laughs> then I told him, No, I'm just going for a walk. My parents live by here. <laughs> Okay, so anyway, this is one technique for keeping the mind under restraint is to keep the attention on the feet or on some other inward point of focus. Okay. If you're doing anapanasati, it's difficult to follow the breath, but you could just be walking left, right, left, right, just following, feeling the form of the body. Okay, now the Buddha continues and he says that while taints, vexation and fever might arise in one who abides with the eye faculty under strength. There are no pains, vexation or fever in one who abides with the eye faculty restrained. strength. Usually when the Buddha gives the instructions on sense restraint in the suttas, he says, he uses the expression abhijadomanasana. Which means if one dwells on restraint in the sense faculties, greed and sadness arise in the mind. Or you could say attraction and aversion arise. But here, because he's dealing specifically with the taints, he uses the expression taints, which will be the factors of desire, the factors that keep one in bondage vexation be like annoyance or irritation. And fever here means not that you get sick with the fever, but it's really passion or excitement. So those, when you dwell restrained in the sense faculty, then those do not arise. And the same is repeated basically for all of the other five sense faculties. I say even though this sutta is explained, or this passage is explained specifically in the terms of a bhikkhu, but even a lay person today has to keep the senses restrained. Because everywhere you have, especially through advertising, attempts to excite desire, to create feelings of discontent, to blow up the mind with excitement, And if one is not restraining the senses, restraining the mind, then it's easy to get swept away by all of this influence of industry and business which just wants to make us buy things. You see, driving through the streets, always billboards and signs everywhere blowing up the mind
1: And today, in a much more dangerous situation, As I heard recently a visitor from Germany, a doctor who came, who told me they are selling a kind of Christmas cakes which is smelling nicely, this cardamom, which you have here. So when they advertise the Christmas cake, they use one little pill into the printer machine. Mm. where this cake is printed, I mean, this picture of this cake. Yeah. When you open the newspaper, you get already the smell. They have neglected the nose as one of the most catching uh, equipment for their advertising uh, yeah. strategies. So they become every day more sophisticated yeah. and therefore it is quite good when we are training also a little bit of the mechanism. Yeah. To work
0: That's not completely new. I saw it even in the it was in 1991 when I went back to America some of these magazines where they have the advertisements of perfumes. Ah, and yeah, all perfume on.
1: that is understood yeah, that you I can think. take out. But now in normal newspapers that this no newspaper. normal newspapers where they have this Lancome is that called? these a yeah, no? yeah. Pancakes, mm-hmm. and uh, they are, the people are very really waiting for that particular mm-hmm. sensation and the nose has been neglected until now in the advertising business, all the and the high year. so very clever.
0: Ok, so this is the way the taints are to be abandoned by restraining. Actually, one doesn't really eliminate the things just by restraint. That's not possible. The pains can only be eliminated by wisdom or knowledge. But through restraint, one keeps the things under control and prevents them from flourishing, from expanding, from proliferating. Okay, now we come to taints to be abandoned by using. This is by making use of the basic requisites of life. Here the Buddha, again, is speaking for two mucks, so he speaks in terms of the four pachyas the robes, food, dwelling place, and medicine. And he gives basic formulas that the monks use in reflecting upon the use of these requisites. When using the robe, for example, one thinks that one uses this robe only to protect the body from cold, from heat, from the flies, mosquitoes, the touch of creeping things, which means serpents, serpents and maybe insects. And only to cover up nakedness. So one shouldn't be using the robe as a decorative item to make oneself beautiful and attractive. Of course, in worldly life, then one has to look clean and neat with clothing. But one shouldn't be too addicted to fashions, like spending a lot of money on beautiful saris and the latest fashion clothing. It's actually it's. I have to say it's a shameful waste of money, always to be designing new styles of clothes for different seasons. We have in the West fall, winter style, of course you have to have different clothes for the fall and winter because the temperature is different, but they have new st- different styles every year. So that the fall styles, 1999, in the fall of 2000, the person wouldn't want to be called a fashionable person wouldn't want to be caught wearing them. It's shame to be wearing them. Especially the ones who are very vulnerable are the women. <laughs> because they know that the women are very concerned with always being in fashion. And so, it's, so one has to have differently colored clothing. One just can't be like a monk or a nun or a saffron robe all the time. But still one shouldn't be concerned with overly decorated over-decorating the body just to be clean, neat and reasonably in style but not following all the latest whims actually.
1: But that is of course a very old, uh, old habit of human beings, so that even the paint material is the oldest water traits known to man because people those days they painted their naked bodies with all kinds of beautiful colours. It was, a, it was also a very tricky game of evolution and um, have yeah, to see through it and know, by wisdom I mean, not so much by suppressing these little pleasures, I think, and, uh, yeah, that's quite important.
0: Okay, then one uses the food. Again, this is especially for monks who are not to be overly concerned with taste, with delicious taste. Not for amusement, intoxication, you know, for ex- enjoying different tastes, for the sake of becoming physically beautiful and attractive, but just for keeping the body in good health keeping it free from disease and for leading the holy life. Then again one uses the resting place, the lodging, just as a way of warding off the changes of the weather and for, again for protecting oneself from flies, mosquitoes and so on. And one uses the medicinal requisite, this is gilana pachya, only to Bring about the protection from painful feelings that arise, and to maintain oneself in good health. Okay, so these—this is just sort of common sense in the use of the basic requisites of life. Okay. Do you want to add anything?
1: No, well, I want to come back to the word "samadhi," which uh, there is a very fine other English version of sama which is corrected vision which I think is very useful a corrected vision mm. so the uncorrected vision is that what a worldly mm. world has and a corrected vision is what we would call samadhi, because it is in the main time it is right foundation of thinking so. You many words for some is quite good. Otherwise, we
0: are getting it wrong. You know. Okay. The next category of taints, to be abandoned by enduring. The Pali word here is adhvasana, which means you know, tolerating, bearing up, enduring. And the virtue that is needed to practice enduring is, what is that quality? No. no. Patience. It's what's called in Pali, khandi. Sanskrit shanti. Which means in accepting whatever happens without getting upset, without getting angry, without becoming dejected. Ok, so now the Buddha explains how this is done. What are the taints that should be abandoned by enduring? Here a bhikkhu reflecting wisely bears cold and heat. In northern India, during the hot season, it would become very hot. Even temperatures would go up to the, into the forties, And when it becomes cold, then it becomes quite cold during the cooler season, so that even frost appears on the ground. And yet the monks will have just their robes, maybe a shawl of some sort, just for use in the colder season. And at the time of the Buddha, many were just living a wandering life without nice, comfortable viharas, strong plastered walls but they would be wandering, living just in makeshift huts, in caves. And so they would be constantly subject to the changes of temperature. And one has to bear that patiently, without complaining. Also, one has to endure hunger and thirst. The monks would be walking long distances every day, many, most of the time, going on alms rounds often they would get sufficient food, especially when they were living in the larger monasteries or in the areas occupied by Buddhist population. But when they would wander into other areas, sometimes in the high country near the Himalayas, the foothills of the Himalayas, where tribal people were living who maybe never had any experience in dealing with ascetics with monks, they would have to still live by pindapatta and they would just get maybe just scraps of food for days on end. Sometimes they would go long distances, perhaps even missing several days. And this has been true even everywhere in Buddhist Asia where there's been a what the tradition of wandering ascetic monks. Even recently in Thailand in the 20th century, if you read about the lives of some of the great ascetic monks like Achan Mun, Achan Mahabor, Achan Lee, Damadaro, these are the great meditation masters of Thailand. They would go wandering into the remote areas of the far north in Thailand. Very in regions where people didn't even know anything about Buddhism or about monks. When they saw Buddhist monks they thought that they were ghosts and they wouldn't, would just hide in their houses, wouldn't give them any food until they would observe the behavior of the monks and that they would realize that these are human beings. Then the monks would be able to explain to the people what they would do. Sometimes they would have to use interpreters since the people didn't even speak the same language. And then one has to bear the attacks of flies, mosquitoes, sometimes strong wind, hot sun, okay, those are you might call the inclemencies of the climate. Then there come human, uh, disagreeable things inflicted by humans, by other people. Ill-spoken, unwelcome words, sharp words, even like I had to enjoy when you go walking on the streets. Like, of New York, when people shout out abusive statements. And then one would fall sick, and one has to endure illness, painful bodily feelings that are racking, sharp, piercing, disagreeable, distressing, menacing to life. If one doesn't have patience, then one won is subject to illness and experiences, these very painful things, then one becomes miserable and dejected, even one falls into despair, even wanting to die. But if one can be patient, then one can endure them. And the secret or key to patience is sati or mindfulness. Just Observing whatever one experiences and treating it just as an object of attention. When there is pains in the body, then one just observes them as painful feelings. Just arising and passing away, coming and going. If one is subject to abusive words from others, then one mindfully watches one's own reaction, and one will radiate metta, loving kindness and compassion to the one, the person who attacks you. And again, when one is subject to difficult outer conditions, cold and heat, hunger and thirst, again one just has to use firm resolution of will to bear these hardships without complaining without becoming angry, without becoming depressed. I
1: think the highest virtue is in this endurance. Hmm. Highest virtue is the same as that particular Buddhist endurance, and is also the highest form of ascetic behaviour. So this uh, is the fruit also. No, oh. when we have practiced this patient, we also can consider ourselves to a certain degree mastering
0: of virtue. Mm-hmm. The Buddha says in the Dhammapada Kanti for along to that patience is the patient endurance is the highest purpose or aesthetic practice. It then contains to be abandoned by avoiding. This is in Pali, Paribhajana. And here the Buddha says that the monk, reflecting wisely, should avoid the wild elephant, the wild horse, the wild bull, wild dog. In other words, one shouldn't try to test one's spiritual strength by walking in areas where you have these wild animals. But it's, I think, very important to preserve one's human life. Not to be afraid of death, but one shouldn't just needlessly risk throwing one's life away just in some macro spirit of trying to prove that you're a real, highly accomplished yogi. Exposing oneself to these dangerous wild animals. Then one avoids a snake, a stump, a bramble patch, a chasm, cliff, cesspool, This is all just common sense. One avoids sitting on unsuitable seats, wandering to unsuitable resorts. I think the commentary says that a monk wandering on armed should not go walking through what's called today the red light district of a town, or the center where the prostitutes are and he should avoid associating with bad friends since if he associates with them then others, his fellow monks, might suspect him of bad conduct. Okay, this is all just a matter of decency, of virtue and of common sense.
1: There is often the mentioned that we should not dwell with fools but sometimes we have to endure it and here also I think patience and compassion is necessary because there we cannot avoid it. No? Mm-hmm. We have also to be, be kind with our own foolishness. Yeah. Ok,
0: the sixth type of things as it tends to be abandoned by removing This is Vinodana. We call this dispelling. Vinodana means driving away, pushing away. And this refers quite specifically to the training of the mind, especially to the mastery of the thought processes. And as you know from other suttas, the Buddha usually speaks of three types of long thoughts or unwholesome thoughts, especially for a monk in training. That is kama vitaka, sensual thought, then vyapara, vyapara vitaka, thoughts of hatred or ill will, and vihingsa vitaka, thoughts of harming of inflicting harm and suffering on others. We could say, thoughts of cruelty. So these unwholesome thoughts one has to overcome. And the Buddha says this, that a monk in training does not tolerate an unarisen thought of sensual desire. And the word here, tolerate, this is adivasethi which is the same word which is used here in, which I used earlier for endurance, adivasana. That is the noun, the verb, adhivāsati. And so one endures painful feelings in the body, one endures cold and heat, one endures abusive words of others, but one doesn't endure doesn't tolerate arisen thoughts of sensual desire, ill will, and cruelty, but rather one abandons them, removes them, does away with them, and the Buddha uses a strong term, anabhavan gameti. He drives it to non-existence. In other words, he annihilates it. And there are many different ways, and it's not only these these three thoughts, but then the Buddha continues and he says he does not tolerate any arisen, evil, unwholesome states. So there can be unwholesome thoughts of many different kinds, not only sensuality, ill will, or cruelty, but whatever unwholesome thought arises, the monk dispels it, drives it away, annihilates it. And in various suttas, the Buddha has given the methods for overcoming these thoughts. Sometimes one can get... overcome these unwholesome thoughts by applying the appropriate antidote. For example, the antidote to sensual thought is the meditation on the foulness of the body, the impurity of the body. The method directly opposed to the thought of ill will is Maitri Bhavana, the meditation on loving-kindness. The method for overcoming thoughts of cruelty or harming others is Karuna Bhavana, the meditation on compassion. And so one can use these meditation subjects as methods to cultivate in order to weaken and debilitate these unwholesome thoughts. But there come times when these thoughts arise and then one just has to face them and dispel them in the mind. And generally the most effective way of going about that is just to observe them, to note them, without flowing along with them, without buying into them. One just names the thought, labels it, and just watches it as an event in the mind. Just burst of mental energy in a particular shape and color, you can say. And then when one labels and just turns it into a mental object, the thought loses its power and it fizzles out disappears. So it's not always a matter of, or generally it's not a matter of forcibly fighting with one's thoughts. Though occasionally one might have to do that. But the, gentler, the gentle and most effective approach is simply to observe, label and let the thought fizzle out by itself.
1: Even here we can use the intellect very beautifully even when we have not realized it, but we can apply that thought. When almost oppressive thoughts are very difficult to dispel, I found the easiest way to dispel them is by naming them this is not I, this is yeah, not yeah, mine, yeah. this is not myself. Because that is very, very, very uh, efficient. That is
0: If you identify with the thought or, of course you don't identify with the thought by thinking that is I, that is mine, but just, if one flows along with the thought, then one identifies with it. But when one turns the thought into a mental object, then it's something standing up and facing you. It's not behind the mind, but it's in front of the mind, and then you just watch that thought as something with which you don't identify. This is Netang Mama, it's not mine, it's just a form of thought, just.
1: Not only that, you will immediately find out where it is from, because when there is no I, no mine, uh, not myself, the next thought will be, how did I get it, then you will see by unwise, Contact this feeling has arisen, and so on, and so on. So, there you will come closer and closer to benefit from the Anapta idea.
0: Okay, now we come to the seventh way or technique for abandoning the taints. These are the taints to be abandoned by developing. And the word here is the key word is bhavana. And with the seventh section, now we come to the method. This is the method by which one transforms the, by which the stream enterer transforms the vision or seeing of the four noble truths into full realization. This is called bhavana, because one is developing the insight into the truth to the point where that insight becomes so powerful that it can cut off all of the defilements, finally, and irreversibly. So the Buddha says, what are the taints to be abandoned by developing? And he explains by way state, energy, rapture, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity, and of each of these enlightenment factors, the text says that it is supported by seclusion, dispassion, and cessation, and ripens in enlightenment. I think I explained this whole passage of two months ago, was it? But so I'll just do it very briefly. Now, each of these terms—seclusion, dispassion, and cessation—can be understood. is rather complex at different levels. But initially, one develops them in the stage of insight. One is practicing insight meditation, and so. In the strong stage of strong insight, then one is developing the enlightenment factors supported by seclusion, dispassion, and cessation. It is called seclusion because it's secluded from all of the defilements, dispassion because it's leading to the fading away of passion. And it's supported by cessation, because it's leading to Nibbāna, the complete cessation of suffering. And it matures towards relinquishment. It ripens towards the ultimate relinquishment of all conditioned things. In other words, it ripens to Nibbāna. And so one begins by developing the enlightenment factor of mindfulness, sati. As one goes on, mindfully attending to the four objects of mindfulness, body, feelings, mind states, phenomena, then one starts investigating them. That's the investigation of phenomena. When investigation is undertaken, then the energy arises and becomes strong. And those three, what we might call, the three causal factors in the factors of enlightenment, those are the three things which are actually practice and exercise. And as one is exercising these three things, then joy or rapture arises when the mind is beginning to dig into this object When the investigation becomes clear, when the energy is strong, then joy arises and the joy becomes more and more refined, more and more elevated, until it turns into this rapturous factor of enlightenment. As one continues calming the mind, settling the mind, then that rapture, quiets down and all of the disturbances in the process of contemplation subside and the mind becomes tranquil. That is the tranquility enlightenment factor. And through that tranquility, the mind experiences pleasure and happiness. And through that pleasure and happiness, the mind becomes concentrated. That is the samadhi, concentration enlightenment factor. And then when concentration is stabilized and steady, the mind becomes unshakable by anything pleasant or unpleasant, by unshaken by the pairs of opposites, that is equanimity, who paid. And so then one has these seven factors of enlightenment occurring simultaneously, working together to bring the full maturation of wisdom, of enlightenment. And when that enlightenment arises, then all the taints, all the defilements are eradicated ultimately and completely. Do you
1: want to? Yeah, that is I do not know if that is uh, before that ultimate yeah. eradication, if there is not a temporary experience by the way that these seven factors of enlightenment can be understood altogether. And at the same time, as a counter vision, we may have entrance into the particular Samavada, for instance. That can be possible, that it opens a, a, a new step. Mm. Maybe there are several levels of understanding and completion of, of self-enlightenment. But there are many, many
0: steps. Yeah, 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 many steps. I'm just speaking in very general, yeah, yeah. just following the that
1: also there, there uh, yeah, can be a moment where these seven factors are very close all together, mm-hmm. and we see based upon these seven factors we have a new understanding for something mm-hmm. we have no understanding before.
0: Okay, so now in the final paragraph, the Buddha will sum up everything that's said before and then draw the conclusion. He says, Bhikkhus. When for a bhikkhu the taints that should be abandoned by seeing have been abandoned by seeing. When the taints that should be abandoned by restraining have been abandoned by restraining. When the taints that should be abandoned by using have been abandoned by using. When the taints that should be abandoned by enduring have been abandoned by enduring. When the things that should be abandoned by avoiding have been abandoned by avoiding, (laughs) when the things that should be abandoned by removing have been abandoned by removing, when the things that should be abandoned by developing have been abandoned by developing, that is when these seven methods for abandoning the things have been fully applied, successfully applied. Then he is called a bhikkhu who dwells. Restrained with the restraint of all the taints. That is, he fully perfected this teaching. He has severed craving, it's cut off craving completely. He has flung off the fetters, broken through all of the ten fetters, and with the complete penetration of conceit, that is, the very notion the conceit, I am. He has made an end of suffering. That is, he's reached the final goal, the fruit of our right here and now. And that is the end of the Savasas. It's very important, Sutta, and it's very complete by bringing together these seven methods of training. Okay, any questions, comments? To promote it may come the change that's uh, coming and mm-hmm. visible
1: Why, uh, also useful uh, to provoke it uh, from, uh, to provoke it tends uh, to uh, come up so because that is the kind of uh, terrifying and people are doing they sometimes provoke you that your taints are coming up, becoming visible. And they always have, uh, we have always problem with
0: Buddhism because they think that Buddhism
1: is uh, keeping them down. They, keep it, they think Underground, it's possible. That's
0: a misunderstanding. Yeah, but still, I think it's important to keep the taints under control if one sort of just, on one's own, if one sort of activates the pains, you know, by indulging in unwholesome thoughts, then they just become stronger sometimes, and more active. But it's sometimes, this is if one has a skillful teacher, meditation teacher or master, sometimes he will put a disciple in situations which provoke These defilements to become active in the mind so that he'll see what is going on in his mind. I think Achanchal is supposed to be very skillful in that, in getting people in situations where they um, become confused or upset or angry so that (laughs) they can see that they still have these to deal with. Rather than if you have everything very smooth and easy, then one might think that one has gotten rid of these defilements, when they are just lurking beneath the surface.
1: I think also that we have to find in this practical therapeutic, Buddhist therapeutic work, a middle way. That means not to put the finger in the dustbin above the dirt, neither to put perfume over the dustbin. To face the music <laughs> but with, with wisdom. Because all the things there are, uh, they are don't fit what we think Dhamma means, namely balance. We are also done. In the approach of these uh, therapeutic or meditation meditations, it is to face the situation but not, we are not looking for it because when they are coming to face them but to trigger them out
0: I have
1: my doubts no. I have my doubts There is
0: the, uh, the Dhamma Vitya, the, the investigation there yeah. uh, always some in, in problems That is so, that is so yeah. One can use the Dhamma Vitya to examine one's own mind and if one is really carefully and honestly observing one's own mind then one sees what states are arising and which aren't. So one doesn't have to make a deliberate effort to <laughs> provoke the pains and bring them in. It
1: would be a great mistake to 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 look for the devaranas for the hindrances. Uh, for search for the hindrances when you do your anapana When they are coming you are using your medicine. But don't look for them. That would be a terrible mistake in education. Some people who are doing this and they're totally wrong. Don't do
0: that. Okay, then maybe this will be enough for this evening. Then next Thursday we have a class. It'll be on sutta number three, Dhamma Daya. The air, dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Dharma